Mark chapter uh, 7. Mark chapter 7. We're going to pick up where we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark. Um, as you're turning there, just a uh, way of reminder, we've been studying through Mark's Gospel for uh, most of 2022 so far. Uh, some of you incoming 7th graders, you haven't been around from the start on this, but really... We've just been enjoying seeing the life and the ministry of Jesus played out. Uh, we're seeing him displayed as the true son of God who has come in compassion to save lost sinners. We see him going to the outcasts and people that you would not expect um, and just seeing his grace put on display. And we see that in a lot of different stories and accounts. Mark chapter 7, we've really seen uh, most of this chapter Jesus confronting the, le- uh, the, the religious establishment of the day. People thinking that, you know, to be right with God means that you have all these external conformities. You've got to obey all these rules and be good enough. And that's what makes you right with God. And Jesus, uh, later on, as we saw a few weeks ago when uh, David was here, he taught us and reminded us that, no, God doesn't care about what we do on the outside. God wants our hearts. God cares about our heart being right with him. And I think that uh, that really gets to... Uh, the centerpiece of what Jesus has been trying to communicate throughout the Gospel of Mark. And he's going to put that on display now in this particular story that we're going to see here. It's going to kind of give a transition to seeing what is this genuineness of faith, this inward relationship with God actually look like. And that's going to come in one of the most unusual and I would say unlikely uh, places. So Mark chapter 7 We're going to just be reading this morning from verses 24 to 30. So if you guys would, in honor of God's word, let's stand and let's read it together. So Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. And this will be our passage for study and meditation today. So Mark chapter 7, starting verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, and yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast uh, cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Go ahead and have a seat. And let me pray. And we'll give the rest of our time to unpacking what... Uh, this passage uh, is talking to us about this morning. Well, God, it is uh, a tremendous privilege for us to be here this morning. We know that um, you have providentially uh, made it so that all these students who are here uh, have come to listen to the story this morning. Uh, And when we say story, it sometimes makes us think of fairy tales and things that are uh, just of myth and creativity as if they're they're not real. But when we say story, Lord, this is is a historical 
account. This is something that actually transpired, something that took place, and something that changed the life of a woman forever. And so let us just pause right now and just remind ourselves the fact that Jesus truly walked this earth, that truly interacted with people like ourselves. Help us to put ourselves within this account this morning to see uh, your beauty and your grace on display and how you are a merciful God who delights to save and to rescue sinners, especially, Lord, those who come begging, pleading for your saving grace. So help us with that this morning. Soften our hearts as we're reminded, Lord, you are a God who cares about the condition of our hearts, not just our external person. So please help us better understand you today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning by uh, asking you a question. This is meant for some, some interaction here. But when, uh, when was the last time that you, you begged for something? When was the last time that you like, truly wanted something, that you begged and you pleaded for it? I'm going to just venture to guess that for most of you, that begging and pleading came in the form of something from mom or dad. I'm just guessing. But when was the last time you truly begged for something? What, what was it? Talk, talk to me a little bit. What is something that you really, really wanted that you were begging and pleading for? Think about it for a moment. Feel free to, to share here. Surely you have had something that you really wanted. Or maybe you can think of something from the past that you really wanted. Yeah. A what? A puppy. How long ago was that? Yesterday? <laughs> okay. Your, your current dog is not enough for you. What? You want two? Okay. Begging and pleading for a puppy. What kind of puppy? I don't really care. Any puppy. Don't really care? Wow. Today's lesson is going to be great for you. You're going to love today's lesson. I love it. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else beg for a puppy? Okay. How about a kitten? Anybody begging for kittens around here? Yeah. You beg for kittens. Anybody begging for, like, you know, like, some type of piece of technology or, like, to go out with friends to do, like, some type of activity? Okay, yeah, I see a lot of All of a sudden, you're like, oh, yeah, that was, that was also yesterday. I remember that now. Yeah. We have a little girl in our house right now who really wants a watch that plays games. And she really wants that. Fortunately, she doesn't beg for as much as I, you know, as I would, I'm thankful for. But uh, that would definitely be her request right now is a special watch that plays games on it. I don't really know. She tries to think that my watch does that, but I try to convince her it does not. So all of you can probably relate though. If you, if you really thought about it for a moment, there's probably something in life that you, you beg for. If you go out into uh, town or uh, out uh, into stores, you're certainly going to probably see begging in some, some sort, right? Uh, stay away from the cereal aisles, right, at the grocery stores because most likely you're going to see a little child throwing a temper tantrum because they are begging and pleading mom for the cereal they want because mostly it's just got the cool toy or something in it. They could care less about the cereal. They just want the prize in it. But today Mark is going to set before us uh, an example or an account of a beggar, someone in complete desperation. And as I mentioned before, it comes from a very unlikely source and an unlikely place. 
And yet, I think that helps us better understand the big idea that Mark is hoping to communicate to us this morning, which is the fact that Jesus welcomes all who beg for his saving grace. Uh, This is not maybe a word that we use a lot when we think about uh, relationship with Jesus or salvation. Uh, But this word, I've learned to appreciate it this week. Those who actually beg for Jesus and his saving grace. Because I think if we were honest, we we probably see that type of language more in the Bible uh, than we think. Maybe not in the form of beg, but I think that the the idea and the heart of that is truly there throughout the scriptures. Begging is an essential feature of what it means uh, to have relationship with Jesus. And so we're going to see that put on display this morning in this story with this woman, this Syrophoenician woman. And I know that's a big $10 word there, but we're going to unpack that a little bit later on. But what I want you to see this morning as we walk through this is the nature of this woman's faith and how Jesus responds to her. So as we unpack this idea of Jesus welcoming all who beg for his saving grace, I want you to look at this woman's faith, and in particular, I want you to see how she recognizes Jesus first as the only source of true freedom, the only source of true freedom. This kind of comes in verses 24 to 26 as uh, the story and the stage for it is set. Mark picks up in verse 24 by noting a change in scenery for Jesus. Uh, So notice that there's a transition that's kind of happening in the gospel of Mark at this time. Verse 24, it says, And from there he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now we don't know exactly what prompts him to go into this little retreat here. Uh, He certainly has stirred the pot with some very influential people. Everything from, if you remember back in chapter 6, he's getting... Uh, Herod, King Herod, kind of getting anxious and antsy about Jesus and what he's doing. Chapter 7, the religious leaders are getting a little upset at Jesus for his teaching. So he's making some enemies. He's stirring the pot a little bit. And so perhaps that's the reason that he's choosing to retreat with his disciples. And he goes into the retreat hub, the retreat destination of Tyre and Sidon. And I am being sarcastic in that sense because this is not exactly your vacation retreat destination getaway. Um, Tyre and Sidon were actually about 35 miles to the northwest of where Jesus was in Galilee. So if you think about Galilee being that region right there, uh, kind of to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, This is all the way up here close to the Mediterranean Sea, again, about 35 miles away. Uh, So quite a little bit of a hike, right? This is a little bit of a journey, but he's going, notice, further away from the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel is kind of all this stuff from Galilee and south. He's going further away from it. Um, Now, this region is pretty significant in the Bible. Uh, So Tyre and Sidon for a long time actually was kind of like a Uh, had a trade partnership with King David and King Solomon. You may have heard of them in the Old Testament. Uh, There was a good kind of economic relationship that Israel had with this region for a while. Eventually, though, uh, that relationship turned from sweet to sour, kind of the opposite of your Sour Patch Kids, right? Going from sour to sweet. It went from sweet to, to sour very quickly. In fact... One of the most wicked characters in all of the Bible, 
and, sorry ladies, one of the most wicked women in all of the Bible, came from Sidon. Do you know what her name was? Jezebel, exactly. So you guys may have heard of the story of King Ahab and Jezebel, maybe Queen Jezebel. She actually was a princess from Sidon. She was a Sidonian princess. And she came from this region, and you know what she brought to Israel as a result? Baal worship. Uh, If you don't know anything about Baal, that's fine. Just think about uh, a foreign god, a foreign deity, a not true god. And she uh, influenced King Ahab, Israel's king, so that the whole nation would worship this foreign god. Okay? This was uh, what we would say in Spanish as no bueno, no good, right? This is not what, that's about the extent of my Spanish, right? This is not a good situation in Old Testament uh, history. So this is a, a region that was known for its paganism, not worshiping the one true God. It influenced Israel for a long time, and it was hard for them to come out of that. And this animosity between this northern region and Israel uh, remained even into Jesus' day. So there was kind of that like background tension that existed. And this is the place that Jesus chooses to retreat to. So just have that in your mind that this is not exactly like a popular choice of destination for Jesus to go into. This hub of paganism. And yet it's here that Jesus retreats to him. And it says that he even enters into the home of somebody who lives there. Which, if you know anything about Israelite culture, for them to enter into the uh, home of a Gentile, of somebody outside the nation of Israel, would be considered taboo as well. It would be considered an unclean act. So <laughs> you're going to see here how there's kind of like layer upon layer in this story of uh, not popular things that are happening here. We don't know whose home he enters into, but he wanted it to be kept on the down low, which have you noticed in the Gospel of Mark, when has Jesus ever been able to do something discreetly, <laughs> right? It doesn't happen very easily, right? He wants to kind of keep it on the DL and he goes to town and suddenly everybody knows that he's there. Even the reputation of Jesus which would have been known throughout Israel, had spread into these foreign regions. They knew who Jesus was. They had heard of his miracles. They had heard of his teachings, his miraculous acts. And it doesn't take long for news of his arrival to get around, right? People get out their smartphones. They start posting on social media, on Twitter, right? Hashtag Jesus sighting. Uh, No, of course they didn't do that. But whatever method they had for around there, word got around fast that Jesus was... There, But strangely enough, we don't hear of large crowds coming to see Jesus here in this occasion. That happens in a lot of other places, but we don't hear of lots of people flocking to where Jesus is, but we do hear of one. One person, and that's all Mark cares that we hear about this morning. One person, an immediate response of one individual, and she is a woman. And she has a daughter, we learn here, who is... Verse 25, possessed by an evil spirit. That's translation in Mark's gospel. And as he clarifies later, that means she has a demon that lives within her. Now, again, a lot of you incoming seventh graders, you haven't been around since the start of Mark's gospel. But we learned that this was a big problem in this culture. Uh, I don't know how many times we've, we've, we've seen in Mark's gospel, only, we're only seven chapters in, but how many times Jesus has driven out demons or has places where he's like doing this with multiple people. This was something that Jesus did a lot. 
Now, notice, again, she is desperate here. In verse 26, it says that this is very interesting because she is not just a woman. She is a, what's classified here as a Gentile. When Jesus, or when Mark talks about being a Gentile, he basically just means she's not one of the Israelites. She's not one of God's, like, chosen people from God's chosen nation. That's what Gentile referred to as basically there were Israelites and there was everybody else. So she is a Gentile, but even more specifically, it says that she is a, ethnically, she is a Syrophoenician uh, by birth. Now, you notice here on this map here, it says Phoenicia. Uh, so this was a uh, region of the Middle East here that was under the control of Syria. So that's why when you put it together, Syrophoenician. Um, the reason it says it that way is because if you were... Uh, there was also uh, Libya Phoenicians down in the south in like North Africa. It's really not important that you know all the particulars of it. But basically this woman is a true outsider. That's really what you need to know. That's what it's trying to get at for you here is that she is an outsider. In fact, Matthew calls her a Canaanite. Uh, and if you know anything about the Old Testament, Canaanites were again considered the enemy of God's people who lived in the land. So not the most... <coughs> Uh, appealing portrait that Mark is portraying here of this woman. And yet, notice, she is the only one who comes to Jesus. So consider how much of an outsider and unclean subject this was. You got a Gentile from a land of gross paganism, a woman who would have not been viewed highly in this culture, a daughter who has a demon, an unclean spirit, and as with many situations in Mark's gospel, this story has unclean written all over it. It's a pretty desperate situation when you look at it from uh, you know, a big overview perspective. And yet, isn't it interesting that she is the only one we hear about running to Jesus? Her daughter is enslaved by an evil spirit. The effects of living in a fallen world uh, have made this woman completely desperate for a source of rescue outside of herself. She acknowledges that she is unable to do something that Jesus alone is capable of doing. And as such, she recognizes Jesus as the only source of true freedom in her life. Jesus alone can rescue her and her daughter from their trouble. And so she comes, she, she casts herself down before Jesus, and she does the only thing that she can do. She begs. She begs, for lack of a better word, and for what this context says, she begs like a dog. She begs, she pleads with Jesus. She pleads with Jesus for his saving grace. And that leads us into the second movement in the story in verses 27 and 28 where we see that her faith responds to Jesus with an attitude of genuine humility. An attitude of genuine humility. Jesus takes time to consider his response to this woman. He's not quick on it. In fact, in uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, it indicates that this woman was kind of persistent in her pleading. She didn't just come and like, 
hey, here's my request, and just steps back and waits for Jesus to respond. It says that she is like going about pleading with him, so much so that the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, they get, again, you have to read this in Matthew's gospel, but they get annoyed and listen to this. In Matthew's gospel, they beg, that's the word that's used, they beg Jesus to send her away. They're so annoyed by this woman, like, oh my goodness, she won't give up. Please, Jesus, just say the word and send her away. Get her out of here. We don't want anything to do with her. But Jesus' first response to her finally comes, and it might be single-handedly the most shocking response that Jesus gives in all the Gospels. That's saying something, because Jesus said a lot of shocking things. The one we usually find full of grace and compassion responds with what appears to be callousness and almost insult. Look what he says to her in verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. Wow. So let's try to break down what Jesus is actually saying to the woman here. First he says, let the, let the children be fed first. Who is he referring to when he talks about the children? Who do you think he's talking about there? What do you think? Who are the children? Any idea? Okay. This is helpful to know, but... What I think he's doing here is he's referring to the relationship of the Israelite people to, to Gentiles. Um, the relationship that they had with each other, especially as it relates to gospel benefits. Notice that in uh, the history of the Bible, who did God reveal himself to? Who did he build a nation out of? You can answer this. Hmm? The Jews, the Israelites, right? He made a nation out of Abraham. He says, to you and to your offspring, you will be blessed. I will multiply you. I will make you a great nation. And eventually he did that with the Jews, with the, with the Israelite people. And now Jesus is coming onto the scene, and he's starting to stir things up a little bit because he's definitely still uh, preaching and teaching, and he's, he's pleading with the nation of Israel, but he's also on the fringes still having some of these interactions with some Gentile regions and some people. And he's sending some interesting messages here saying that it's not going to be long before this is going to go out to all people. In fact, we know from his great commission that he says to take the gospel to who? All nations. All peoples. This is what uh, Paul talks about in Romans 1.16 where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the who first? To the who first? To the Jew first and then to the Greek. Again, Greek is just another way of saying Gentile. And so when he's saying in this setting here, let the, let the children be fed first, it's almost his way of saying, you just need to wait your turn. You need to wait your turn. 
Okay, it's not your turn. I have not come yet to, to the Gentiles, you know, to, to give all my saving grace to, to, to send this message to, okay? Just, just wait your turn. Because the children need to be fed first, for it's not right to take what belongs to the children and to give it to the dogs. Ooh, that's an interesting statement. Now, some of you are like, man, what's wrong with that? Dogs are good. Dogs are cool. In fact, let's just be honest. If we were to look at dogs in our culture, man, look at our love for dogs, right? We carry them everywhere we go. We let them sleep in our bed. We dress them up like humans. They're basically one of the family. So you're like, I love to be a dog, right? Dogs are great. But this is where we understand that our American culture of dogs versus first century Israel culture of dogs uh, looks very different. In fact, dogs in the first century, I'm going to have to get it off this page. You guys are too distracted. Uh, dogs in this culture were not, sorry about this, Kate, you know, because I know you really want a puppy right now, but dogs in first century Israel were, uh, were mangy. They were considered scavengers. They roamed the streets looking for garbage to eat. A lot of times for you who want something really gross to think about, they would pick away uh, meat from corpses and stuff. I mean, this, dogs were gross. To be called a dog or to refer to dogs, people were like, ew. Now, there were some people who had some dogs in their house, but there was a far cry from what we just saw in the pictures up there, right? They were not like a member of the household. How many of you have dogs, by the way? How many of you, your dog is like basically like family? Okay, most of you still are, okay. Sorry. Sorry, I'm not trying to insult you this morning. I'm trying to just put it in perspective, okay? Your dog situation, much different from this. This is what Jesus is talking about here. This is not, uh, this is not a flattering concept. Not that being called a dog in our culture would still be flattering, but uh, we have to put it within its proper place here. So we ask ourselves, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus refer and really respond to the woman this way? Was this actually how Jesus felt about her? Did he think of her as nothing more than a mangy scavenger dog? And I would hope you guys know Jesus better than that by this point. And you have to know, there's, knowing Jesus, there's something else that's going on here. In fact, by responding this way to this woman, Jesus is doing something. He's actually seeking to, to draw this woman out even further. He wants her to demonstrate the extent of her faith and her trust in Jesus. So it's, for lack of better words, he's kind of testing and teasing out her faith for the benefit of everybody else who is around, right? He wants to demonstrate to all of them how deep this woman's faith and her desperation for Jesus actually sits. And her response, I love it. It is one of beautiful and genuine humility. Look at what she says in verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I love that. That is, that is so good. Now, again, those of you who have dogs, which felt like a lot of you, you know what she's referring to here, right? 
right? You understand in your household, what do the dogs love more than anything than after meal time? Because what do they get to do? They get to lick up all the crumbs that are around your table after dinner. If you, if you have little siblings or if you have little girls like we do in our household, man, that could be a feast sometimes. All the crumbs, all the things that fall from the table that they want so badly. She says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs will eat the crumbs, whatever falls, any of the leftovers, any of the scraps. They'll take anything they can get. So what's happening in her response? Notice here that this woman is humble. She's not entitled. She doesn't think that she deserves anything. And yet she feels that she will take anything. She shows herself to be needy, not self-reliant, as if she already has the answer. No, she says, no, Jesus, you alone can provide this. She's desperate. She's not confident. She's completely casting herself, begging at the feet of Jesus, saying, listen, if you don't do this, then this won't happen. My daughter will not live apart from you. I'm not asking you for the full meal. I'm looking for the tiniest crumb that my family can take and we can be changed by forever. I mean, student, this is the approach that brings grace and freedom. This is what Jesus talks about when he says what it means to be poor in spirit, to acknowledge your complete dependence and bankruptcy apart from Jesus. Right? We don't, it, Jesus is not just some sprinkle of seasoning on my life. No, she's not asking for even just, the, the, again, the full meal. She's not asking for the full inch of life. She's like, I just want a crumb. I'll take whatever I can get from Jesus because that little bit will be more than enough to satisfy me forever. And so we see this woman's faith respond with an attitude of genuine humility. And that very response of faith then receives from Jesus the benefits of God's saving grace. Jesus is blown away by her response. Look at how he talks about it here in verses 29 to 30. He says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Again, Jesus's reply was meant to draw out this heart attitude in her. He knew what was inside of her, but his reaction was meant to teach everyone around her. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, if you were to read that, Jesus says to everyone, or he says to the woman, he says, Oh woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Jesus was more than pleased to lavish on this woman what she desired. He could have gone with her. He could have gone to her house. He could have touched his daughter, uh, her daughter and healed her on the spot. And instead, Jesus says, listen, this is so amazing that this very moment, your daughter's, she's healed. The demon is gone. Jesus, in that moment, made it happen instantaneously. Her life in that single moment was changed forever. Again, guys, think about what it would have been like for this woman and for this daughter to have been enslaved for however long, maybe her whole life, by this demon that changed their life, that turned their life every single day upside down. Think about how life-changing this would have been. 
Sometimes we don't marvel at God's grace the way we should and see how life-changing it actually is. This very moment, done. This is not Jesus tossing her a scrap and saying, now go along. This is Jesus pulling out the chair and saying, hey, come have a seat with me at the table. I'm not, I'm not going to cast you away. I'm not just going to say, listen, this is it. No. You deserve a seat at this table just as much as anyone. Those who recognize Jesus for who he is and recognize who they are in response to Jesus will receive the full benefits of God's saving grace. I mean, that's, that is... Incredible. That is miraculous to consider. And so as you think about everything in this story, there's six key takeaways I want you to think about this morning. First of all, I want you to think about this. Jesus loves the outsider and, let's just face it, Jesus loves the underdog. Jesus loves them. In fact, I would say that they are his favorite people to save. As I look at this story, I can't help see, help but see a woman, a woman who had all the cards stacked against her. Probably heard that phrase before when we talk about like having all the cards, the deck stacked against you. That, that was kind of this woman. She was a Gentile. She was a woman. She had a, a family that was possessed with, with, with demons. I mean... She pretty much had every mark against her from a human perspective. In our minds, we try to think about, oh, the people that Jesus would save and clean up. You know, we think about people trying to tidy themselves up and do their best to work hard. Those are not the people Jesus cares about. Jesus cares about the people who are broken and contrite in spirit. And in the fullest sense, this woman was an outsider. And in the context of the story, we would call her an underdog. And we love underdog stories, don't we? By underdogs, I don't mean like the actual like underdog books. I'm talking about like underdog stories, right? There's a reason why every March we love the, the basketball tournament, the college basketball tournament. We, we love to see small school teams competing with and often beating these huge universities. We call them Cinderella stories. In fact, there's a reason why Disney has a story called Cinderella because it's an underdog story, right? Somebody that you would not expect to succeed and rises from the bottom to the top. Underdog stories, we love them in our culture. And that is exactly what this type of story is. These are the people that Jesus loves to lavish his grace on. And if you don't believe me, if you need a reminder of that, go back and read Mark's gospel, the first six chapters up to this point. You'll see that these are the type of people that Jesus lavishes his grace upon. And I'm not sure where you're at with the Lord this morning. Some of you here may be thinking you're, you're good, that you, 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 you have it all worked out and it's all, all going to be fine in the end. But some of you may think that you're unlovable. I'm serious. Some of you this morning may be thinking to yourself, I've lived a life that's pretty unworthy of God's grace. I'm not the one that God would want to save. And maybe even right now, I'm not sure what I want to do with God. I'm, I'm not sure that I even care that much. But this story reminds us that Jesus holds a special place in his heart 
for the rebel and for those who are often viewed as outsiders and those who are considered unworthy of his grace. Secondly, Jesus alone can set you free from sin's bondage. Jesus alone can set you free from sin's bondage. You know, again, we take it for granted, and I think, again, our culture does not do us any favors when we think about demon possession. We really make light of demons in our culture. We, we like to be entertained by them. We have movies about them. and Just, we don't really put ourselves in the place of people who their lives were turned upside down forever because of this. We don't see this in our culture very much, and so we think to ourselves, this is so far removed from reality. And yet, these were people in this culture who were living this day in and day out. Radical, hard lives. Some of you have hard things that go on in daily life. But demon possession in this culture was bondage. You were enslaved to this. The curse of sin enslaving an individual to do its will anytime, anywhere. That's a hard way to live. It's a hard way to live. And it's a powerful picture, a powerful illustration of the power of sin in our lives apart from God's saving grace, apart from Jesus. The language throughout the New Testament that describes our life apart from Jesus is slavery and bondage. Right? There's no mistake as to why the Bible uses that type of language. This is a picture kind of of that. This woman knew that Jesus alone could set her family free. Could set her family free from the power and bondage of sin, which is why she came running and begging, which naturally leads us to our following point here, that you will only beg for Jesus when you finally realize how helpless you are without him. I want you to think about that statement again. Read it and read it slowly. You will only beg for Jesus when you finally and fully realize how desperate and helpless you are without him. This is something I think we just, we don't, we don't think about. Because we live in a pretty privileged culture here in America. We're pretty entitled. We have a lot that's already working in our favor. Not many of us often feel desperate or helpless. Many of you have grown up in church your whole life, and so this is just not type of language you think about. But the reality is you don't come to Jesus because you're feeling full and satisfied. You come to Jesus because you realize you need him. My, uh, my brother-in-law and his wife have two dogs. Going back to dogs again here this morning. They have two dogs uh, named Stubby and Joe. If you need a picture of them, I don't want to throw it out there for too long because you're going to think how adorable they are and you're going to be distracted by anything I'm going to say after this. We have Stubby there on the left. You have little Joe there on the right. Very patriotic scene here, right? America. Um, But Stubby and Joe typically come over to, to family gatherings, especially at uh, my wife's parents' house. We, you know, we'll have, uh, the usual family gatherings for birthdays or holidays, stuff like that. And those gatherings are usually full of lots of nieces and nephews, a lot of little kids. And so naturally, mealtime is one of Stubby and Joe's favorite times because guess what? When you get a lot of little kids eating around a table, guess what happens? Lots of crumbs. Lots of crumbs. I mean, it's like a feast for them. Lots of times. Now, if little... Uh, 
little Joe here and uh, Stubby, if they were to make their way over to the adult table, guess what they're probably not going to find a whole lot of? Not going to find a lot of crumbs around that table. At least I hope not. I don't think they typically do. Because most of the time, especially here, little Joe, what you'll find that he ends up doing is coming over to the little metal bar stools that people are sitting on and starts doing, doing this. What's he doing? It's begging, right? It's something. Want something, right? And you have to say, go away, go away, go away. Get, get away. Just being annoying. But you get what's at the heart of a dog, right? They want something. They're begging for it because they so desperately want what they do not have. I just, I love that, the, the picture that, that that brings to us about how you will only beg for Jesus when you will realize how helpless are, you are without him. Desperate when we, uh, you know, student, you, you're only going to beg when you're desperate. Salvation is not for those who are already full but want just a little something extra, a little whipped cream on top of just their good life. You know, Jesus is a nice little additive to have and to just kind of pad my already cushy life. Here's something you need to realize this morning. Think about this. Jesus will not satisfy the self-sufficient. If you already think that you're good on your own, Jesus is not going to satisfy you. Do you think you're good and you just tack Jesus on? No. It's not how it works. The Bible says that he is the one who satisfies those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those of you who are at a sin camp, you know what I'm talking about. HB talked about that in one of our sessions. To actually hunger and thirst for righteousness. Fourth, I love, I love the way that R.C. Sproul puts this. This was something I came across in my study this week. But the crumb of your salvation is the pearl of great price. It's the pearl of great price. How many of you actually see, if you are saved this morning, how many of you actually think about your relationship with Jesus that way? The pearl of great price, it's a parable that comes in Matthew chapter 13 where it talks about a man who found a pearl of infinite value in a field. And he covers it back up and he goes and he buys that field. He gives away everything. He forsakes everything so that he can buy that field because that pearl is of greater value than anything else in this world. And the point Jesus was making is to have relationship with him, to have eternal life with him is far more valuable than anything else this world can offer you. Anything else that you can have in this life. And so I ask you this morning, do you consider your relationship with Jesus to actually be that valuable? Do you treat it that way each and every day? That everything else, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. What does that mean? Your pursuits of maybe academic success compared to Jesus? Rubbish. Your desire to be the best athlete possible and to be able to get the most accolades and praise from people compared to Jesus? Rubbish. Popularity? Rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Dating and relationships? Rubbish compared to Jesus. 
Social media likes and popularity on the internet, rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Getting a good job, having a family, making money, retiring early with your beach house, absolutely rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Student, do you actually see Jesus as that valuable to you? I'm asking you to really, truly consider that this morning. If you lacked all those other things, but you still had Jesus, is he that valuable to you? That you would be able to say, I am fully satisfied because the crumb of my salvation is the pearl of great price. If you can't say that, this morning, you need to pray, you need to beg, you need to be on your knees begging Jesus to give you that desire today. Fifth, faith in Jesus makes you a child of God. This woman went away no longer a Gentile dog, but a beloved daughter. Her faith in Jesus made her just as much a child of God and his kingdom as any Israelite did. In fact, most people in Israel did not respond to Jesus with the type of faith that this woman had. That's pretty amazing to think about. That's why the gospel has indeed gone into all the world so that all can put their faith in Jesus and all could be united to him and be called children of God. Faith, student, is the great unifier of God's people. That is what makes you a child of God. In fact, this is what uh, Paul talks about in Galatians Chapter 3, where he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. In other words, if you truly put your faith in Jesus, the only source of rescue and salvation in your life, guess what? You're all united as sons of God. That's what makes you a child of God in his books. And if you haven't been to first service already this morning, you need to go to first service because what Pastor Kevin's talking about with Ephesians chapter 2 is exactly this point as well where Paul writes, remember that you who were at one time separated from Christ. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about people outside the nation of Israel. He's saying you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were an outsider. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are just as much a child of God as any Israelite is. Student, by surrendering to Jesus, you are forsaking who you once were. God gives you a brand new identity, no longer as an outsider, but as a beloved child with all the rights and all the privileges of a family member. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to remind you, finally... That there is room for you at Jesus' table. In fact, the call of the Gospels, the call of the Epistles, is really in many ways to come to that table. To come begging and pleading in complete desperation saying, Lord, I need you. I cannot do it on my own. In fact, This is what Jesus says in the Gospels. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. And so, student, I invite you this morning. Come as a dog begging for crumbs. And Jesus will be more than pleased to pull out the chair and welcome you to his family. 
Have you truly done that? Again, I'm, I'm genuinely asking you this morning, do you feel like you have actually, truly done that? If not, then I'd love to talk to you more about what that means. Because Jesus calls for everyone to come, begging like dogs, begging for him. Because when we do, we find the ultimate satisfaction that he and he alone can provide. That, let's pray. and be dismissed. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your amazing gift of salvation. The grace that you freely offer to all who come, who are humble in heart, who are poor in spirit, who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Because, Lord, in you alone is life and satisfaction and fullness of freedom from sin and the bondage that we experience as those who are burdened. So we, we pray this morning for those who, Lord, who have not come begging and pleading for your saving grace, that you would stir in their hearts this morning, just helping them see that Jesus alone is able to satisfy their longing and their desires and their, their desperation for approval and satisfaction, knowing that you alone, Lord, are able to grant that. And for others in this room, more, this room this morning, Lord, who have maybe lost the awe and the wonder a little bit of the salvation that they've been granted by Jesus, I pray that you would stir in their hearts this morning a greater appreciation for the pearl of great price to know that in Jesus they have the greatest treasure on this earth, that there is nothing else that can satisfy them like Jesus and that they would treat their daily life that way. The way they pursue their academics, the way they pursue their extracurriculars, the way they pursue their relationships and their jobs and whatever it may be, that they would filter it through the lens of Jesus and all that they have been granted and given in him, knowing that they have been approved and they have been accepted and that they are a child who sits at the table of Jesus. Thank you for your grace and thank you for being a God of salvation who delights to give us even the crumbs, so that we might be your people. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name.